the means of architecture is to reflect society and to elevate society while enabling humans to do what they do. Architecture should be about resilience. It should be about the health and well-being. It should it should inspire people. It should do a lot of things that maybe it's not doing per your comments. Um, but essentially, you know, if we get back to the roots of the the word and the words in Greek that were spliced together to make this concept, the way I think about it is architecture is creating order from chaos. One, two, Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and on the show today, we will explore the dynamic world of architecture. Delving into topics such as the evolution of architectural styles from historic to modern, the role architecture plays in society, and the critical importance of end-user engagement in the design process. We'll also dive deep into sustainable architecture, the impact of building codes, and the criteria needed for buildings to be considered green. You will learn sustainable architecture isn't just about constructing new buildings, it's about reimagining and repurposing existing structures. Our guests will enlighten us on the significance of adapted reuse and repurpose. In addition, we'll examine the vital role architecture plays in rebuilding communities devastated by natural disasters, looking specifically into Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. What do you do when you enter a building? Do you look at its components, appreciating its design and functionality, or are you simply trying to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible? In the bustling modern world, filled with short attention spans and hectic schedules, it's easy to overlook the artistry and significance of architecture. However, there was a time when people genuinely appreciated the intricate details and awe-inspiring designs of buildings. In historic times, architecture was revered and individuals would take the time to notice the elements that made each structure unique. In today's fast-paced society, we often rush through buildings, solely focusing on reaching our destinations quickly. Our busy lives and digital distractions have diminished our ability to fully engage with the spaces around us. But what have we lost by neglecting the beauty and craftsmanship that architecture offers? In recent years, there has been a growing awareness of the need for sustainable practices in architecture. As climate change and environmental concerns take center stage, architects are beginning to integrate eco-conscious principles into their designs. In today's world, the considerations for constructing a building extend far beyond mere cost and timeline. It's no longer just about the financial and logistical aspects. We must contemplate the profound impact of our environment and carefully evaluate the materials we employ. Our guest on the Green Hour today has spent his career bridging architecture and sustainability together. Blake Jackson is the Global Director of Sustainability for NOR, a fully integrated A&E firm consisting of a team of 800 architects, engineers, planners, and interior designers. Blake's journey in architecture began in the picturesque town of Chatsworth, Georgia, where he developed a passion for shaping spaces and creating meaningful structures. 
He pursued his education at Kennesaw State University, earning a Bachelor of Architecture degree, followed by a Master of Architecture in Sustainable Environmental Design from the Architectural Association Graduate School in London, England. Armed with his expertise, Blake embarked on a remarkable career that spans 22 years in the AEC industry. Currently, Blake serves as the Global Director of Sustainability for NOR. In addition to his professional role, Blake shares his knowledge as a professor and contributes to the field through various advisory boards, such as the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth's Interior Design Program. Blake is also an invited lecturer to many prestigious universities, such as Harvard, Columbia, and Clemson. Blake's commitment to excellence and innovation has garnered him numerous accolades. In 2015, he was recognized as one of the 40 under 40 by the Building Design and Construction magazine, acknowledging his outstanding contributions to the industry. In 2021, he was honored as a lead fellow by the U.S. Green Building Council, further solidifying his expertise in sustainable architecture. Blake's journey to the forefront of his industry has been a winding path, marked by unexpected turns. It all began in the humble town of Chatsworth, Georgia, nestled in the rural landscapes of northwestern Georgia. While Chatsworth may not be widely recognized as a hub for architectural talent, it is where Blake's story unfolded. His life now stands as a testament to the potential that exists within rural communities, inspiring others to believe that incredible achievements are within reach, regardless of where one starts their journey. So we start off every episode and with all the guests, Blake, with talking about your background and how you got to the point that you where you are today. So one cool thing that we share is we both spent a lot of time in Chatsworth, Georgia. You're living in Boston now. I'm in Atlanta. And these two places couldn't be more more polar opposite than Chatsworth, Georgia. So um, could you start off by talking about Chatsworth, Georgia and, you know, what life was like growing up? Sure. You know, um it's a place that you can't appreciate until you're my age, I think. So I look back on it and I realized it was a really great place to grow up. And, uh, you know, often I think that all the valuable lessons that I learned, minus the specifics of my profession and trade and just some fortunate and unfortunate life experiences that came afterwards, I learned on a little farm or plot of land somewhere uh, near Eton outside of Chatsworth, which is even smaller. So we're going to do that Southern thing where we out Southern each other with the, how small the place is. But uh, yeah, it was a great place to grow up. I grew a fascination with nature very early on just because it's at the foothills of the Chattahoochee National uh, Wildlife Area. And so you're very close to uh, nature in a pretty profound way. And the backdrop of Chatsworth is very unique. I always feel like I'm home as I'm driving in from the airport or wherever I'm coming from, and I can see uh, Fort Mountain and Grassy Mountain in the distance. So it has a very iconic backdrop of these very uh, pronounced mountains. And so you you grow up running around in those foothills, playing in the ravines, uh, swimming in the creeks. And so nature is very much front and center, uh, so much so that almost people take it for granted. But uh, that was one of the key aspects of Chasworth that stands out to me. The other piece is that it's near Dalton, Georgia, which is the uh, carpet capital of the world. I think it's something like 90% of the world's textiles are manufactured there. So anytime uh, I'm anywhere in the world, I can look down and and there's a little piece of home right under my feet. And um, why that's profound is because it's sort of the opposite of nature in a way. I mean, an industrial town is very much about taking from nature and extracting from nature, um, mostly in a non-sustainable way. 
And, um, you know, it got me to thinking about production, how things are made, how they could be made better, how they're made worse uh, by our intentions or lack of intentionality. Um, I've, I've, it gave me a focus on, um, you know, worker conditions. And, you know, most of my family uh, and friends uh, ended up working at some point in a carpet mill in some level of the distribution line. So it got me thinking in terms of sustainability about supply chain and life cycle and impacts on the health and well-being of the workers. Um, you know, Dalton, Georgia and the areas around, including Chatsworth, were very much like kind of growing up in uh, Springfield, I imagine, for Bart and Lisa Simpson in that regard. So those are two um, sort of different, it's a dichotomy of growing up in and around that area that gave me some of the uh, appreciations for the things that I evangelize today in my, my working profession. But, um, you know, I didn't necessarily set out to have that as an experience, but it's something I look back on and, and reflect on uh, pretty often. Right. Chatsworth, Georgia. Um, I went to North Murray High School, which wasn't around when you when you were growing up. You know, it's a newer school, but I grew up in the Dalton area and ended up going to North Murray High School. And North Murray, the, I'll just say that the people there are some of the best people you'll meet in your life in Chatsworth, Georgia. They will you know, take the shirt off their back and give it to you if you need it. Um, and, you know, it's an impoverished area. But, you know, people will still help you no matter what. So it's I, I, I learned a lot of great lessons in Chatsworth that I can take with me wherever I go. And I'm sure as it, as it sounds like you did as well. So you started in Chatsworth growing up and you ended up going to Kennesaw State to study architecture and architecture is what you've made a career out of. So um, could you dive into, you know, this fascination with architecture and how you chose the school Kennesaw State which isn't too far from Chatsworth. I mean, you're talking an hour, maybe a little bit over an hour. Um, but how did how did that all come about? You know, this fascination with architecture and then your decision to go to Kennesaw State. Yeah, you know, good good question. You know, um, Chatsworth isn't really known for producing a lot of architects. I will say that people there are very self-sufficient. And, you know, when and this is a rural versus an urban condition. Um, people in rural areas just tend to be able to do more things. And, you know, I said most of my family was in the carpet industry. Well, my dad worked for World Carpets for many years until it was bought by Mohawk Industries. Um, but he was a, uh, you know, he loves to work. <laughs> he's still with us and he loves to work. He works. He's one of those people that works for fun. And uh, he's very handy. And so, uh, you know, to make ends meet and also just to keep himself occupied with his talents. Um, he's, a, he's a very helpful person and very self-sufficient in and of himself. So when he wasn't working in a mill by day at night and on weekends, you know, we were, you know, tool belts on, going and helping somebody, doing their wiring, doing their plumbing, uh, basically everything that, you know, carpentry work, roofing, I mean, you name it, we, we built it. Um, and, and I got an appreciation for how things come together from an early age because, uh, you know, his philosophy about parenting was from the age that you're able to do something, you get it and you do it. And so I was swinging a hammer and and, you know, helping frame walls and doing all kinds of stuff. So I got a really unique perspective from an early age about how buildings go together from the trade side. Um, and what I, you know, I was always a bit of an artist myself. So I would, you know, I would I'm, I look back on it now and I think it's kind of brilliant that he could just design things. Um, that were very efficient and very beautiful and very well put together just from his head, uh, almost down to the scrap of, of straw uh, sawdust left over as a result of the cutting. You know, it's kind of amazing 
that he had that experience. But I always found myself questioning, well, why are we doing it this way? Why not do something a bit more unconventional? Why not, you know, test the waters a little bit? And so, you know, that that thought always carried over with me. Um, But it wasn't until I was I would say in the eighth grade, um, two very important things happened in my life that at that point I made up my mind that, yes, I'm going to go to architecture school and I'm going to be a part of this uh, this um, movement towards urbanization and, and, um, you know, contributing to the history of architecture, you know small, small order goals, right? Um, one was we did the ubiquitous eighth grade field trip to Washington, D.C., and I got to actually for the first time see real buildings and real urbanism and monuments and and very thoughtful intention of how you lay out a city for for all of time to sort of rival Rome and rival Paris. And um, that was a seminal moment in my life. I just remember walking around. I don't think I blinked for an entire week. I loved every second of it. And, um, you know, later on in that year, I was fortunate enough to go for the first time to Savannah, Georgia, which is my personal happy place. Uh, I try to go back once every year or two. I've been multiple times. It's 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 beautiful. It's just a beautiful place. And it gives you a sense of uh, of history before in particular before we were modern, before we relied on automobiles for transportation, before we. Uh, had electricity and indoor plumbing and things like that. And uh, I'm not saying I want to go without those things, but it's uh, there was something magical about that time there. I'd never been in a place so old. And so there was something real and authentic about it that really had a profound impact on me. So so you took that again, that eighth grade um, experience in D.C. and then Savannah, Georgia. I love Savannah, Georgia, too. My sister and her husband actually live in Savannah. I was down there probably I don't know, a month and a half ago. Um, and I was in Savannah, Georgia for like four days. Um, and I loved it. It's slow. You know, the people are just, you know, they're, they're more slow moving. Um, it's just your own beach time. And then I went from Savannah to New York City in, in like a span of a week. And it's like a whirlwind. I mean, it's a complete change of speed, right? You have slow versus incredibly fast. Um, the people are very different. But but I agree with you. Savannah is a very special place. And every time I get the opportunity to go, um, I, I am very, very excited to do that. So hopefully maybe this summer I'll go back. Um, but Savannah is, is a really good spot. So you had this fascination again with architecture and you took that with you into college at Kennesaw State where you got a bachelor of architecture degree. And then later on, you got a, a master of architecture in sustainable environmental design. Could you talk about that second degree, your master's, and where that was and, you know, how that came about? Sure. I'm going to take a step back, though, because I just realized I didn't answer part of your last question, which was how did I get to Kennesaw State? And I'll be very quick in the response so we can get to part two. Um, When I left Savannah in the eighth grade, I had it in my mind that I wanted to go to SCAD. And... As I got older, I started to understand an appreciation for money. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of, one of those things that you start to realize as a junior and a senior is that college is going to be expensive. I was a first generation college student and um, I was presented with an opportunity through the Hope Scholarship uh, State of Georgia to take advantage of their Hope Scholarship because I was a Hope Scholar. And that narrowed my choices pretty substantially. So there's three programs of architecture in state. And being a first generation college student, I kind of wanted to not be so far away from home, but I did want to be far enough away from home in an hour, about 15 minutes was about the right number, hour and a half if you wanted to go to Georgia Tech. 
Um, Savannah College of Art and Design is a great school, but being a private institution, the Hope Scholarship only paid for, I think it was $500 a semester. And part of the reason why the Hope Scholarship exists is to avoid the brain drain, which clearly didn't work because I ended up in Boston, but such is, such is life. So they were trying to promote the going to college of uh, students that didn't necessarily always have the ability to go, but had the merit of their grades upon graduating, becoming a graduating senior. And um, they wanted to funnel them into state schools as opposed to losing them to out-of-state schools. And so that narrowed my choices to Georgia Tech and Southern Polytechnic State University, which is now Kennesaw State University. And when I started looking at the two, um, SPSU, now Kennesaw, um, was the only accredited five-year professional bachelor of architecture program. So to go to Georgia, I needed to, sorry, Georgia Tech, I would have needed a master's degree in order to get accredited and licensed as an architect to practice. And um, I thought that that was too big of a commitment for me at that time. I didn't realize I was going to go for a master's degree uh, when I first set out at Kennesaw State University. And when I graduated, I didn't want to go into school directly thereafter. I wanted to work, save up some money. And, and I felt like I needed to practice architecture a bit uh, in order to understand what was actually happening versus what was happening in the classroom. And I'm so thankful for that opportunity because I started to see holes in the profession of architecture, which led me to pursue sustainability and to go to the Architectural Association Graduate School in London in order to um, fill some of the holes in the profession that I saw, which you know now are major opportunities. That little bit of insight in those two years of sort of uh, navigating an internship um, did me some good because I did some critical thinking during that time and it got me to where I'm I'm at in my current professional status today. The things that I identified was a, a severe lack of uh, ability, capability and focus on sustainable design, uh, so much so that I decided to get a complementary degree in uh, building science from the Architectural Association. So I could also be a registered engineer um, in the uh, in the country of uh, of the United or in the United Kingdom, um, if I had chosen to stay there. And now that I work for a global company, perhaps that's a, a some advent advantageous uh, or, or some advantage to me. Right. So so just kind of it's kind of mind boggling for me to think you grow up in Chatsworth and you end up in in London doing doing architecture in a sustainable way with the environment in mind. It is again just an extremely fascinating. And I guess I would ask you, I don't know what year you went to school um, in, in London, but back then, was this this concept of sustainable architecture, was that something that was going around or was this kind of a new idea back then when you were in school? It had been around for, well, it's one of those reasons why I chose to go abroad. I mean, you know, if you start to look at the landscape of architectural education in the United States at that time. So when I chose to go to England, it was I was there from 2007 through 2009. And there are something in the order of magnitude of 125 plus or minus schools of architecture in the United States. And at that time, none of them had a an accredited master's of architecture or MSc degree or an, even an MA degree um, in sustainable environmental design. And uh, if you looked at the UK, there's 48 schools at that time, 24 accredited master's programs. And in my research, so I spent two years just educating myself, consuming as much information from trade journals and became a lead accredited professional and 
and, and got as far as I could on my own, I realized I needed to rent the time that school can provide you to really uh, begin to learn how to design with all this new information in mind. I felt as though learning sustainable design and trying to implement it was almost like working with my hands behind my back because suddenly my creativity was being held back by these sort of virtues. And so I wanted to go to a place that they were teaching people how to leverage the creative potential of sustainability, not just the number crunching of it. And so that that plus out-of-state tuition, uh, it was a no-brainer to go and to, to step a generation ahead of where we are in the States. Now, we have programs now accredited in the States for uh, master's level programs, MRCs, MSCs, MA programs in sustainable environmental design. Uh, I'm glad I didn't sit around waiting for them to emerge. Uh, this program that I went to is one of the oldest in the UK, and it had been around since the 70s. And that's how far ahead they are uh, overseas, particularly in Europe, uh, with regard to an emphasis and focus on the role of architecture in building performance. Well, I'd say not only, I mean, from what I've learned, you know, talking to people on this podcast, it's not only in architecture and, and sustainable architecture that the Europeans have been ahead. They're ahead in almost every category in sustainability. The policies, the regulations, everything. I mean, they're ahead on everything. I spoke to um, in my last position um, when I was running this company called Torlinks. We had a um, a turf recycling company come in from Denmark, um, and the company's called Rematch. And the founder came in, and we met with him. And we were walking around the warehouse, and he was like, "All of all of your forklifts are, are gas powered." How, how does that work? And I said, well, what do you mean? Everything's, I mean, we're all, everything's gas powered in here. And he's like, that doesn't fly where we are. Everything's got to be electric. And he said, you know, golf carts, um, I guess golf carts and, and playing golf and, and where he's from, he said, it's all electric as well. So he's like, it's just so different coming to the States um, versus Europe because regulation is so different and their, their prioritization on sustainability is so high there. I mean, hopefully, I mean, you know, we've, we've seen it change in the U.S. and hopefully at some point we can, you know, get to that level that they are. But um, they're, they're obviously doing a really good job. Well, let's uh, let's talk about that for two seconds. You know, I think there's a little bit too much of a hero worship going on between us and them. I mean, I must admit I was envious for a long time until I until I realized that they're doing this out of necessity. And, you know. With a country the size of ours that has been uh, industrialized for as long as it has and populated um, at least, you know, by, uh, you know, as, as a modern nation state, you know, these, these countries uh, are not as resource rich or, or, or as well geolocated as the United States. And because of that fact, uh, you know, part of the age of exploration was spurred by lack of resources in Europe. And and here we have infinite, you know, untapped resources of fossil fuels and minerals and things that they have to go very far to get. And so part of it is a virtue, but part of it's also out of necessity as well. And uh, unfortunately for them, a lot of their energy resources are, are unreliable and from volatile partners. And so that has forced them to do things quicker than we here who have a bit of a land of plenty and and things are things are rapidly changing and we're starting to catch up in a bit but you know um i, I do like to qualify the statement that there it's not a, as virtuous as it seems they do it out of necessity 
Right, right. And thank you. Thank you for alluding to that, because I obviously I haven't spent much time over there. It's just through conversations that, you know, that I have, I've spoken to people about Europe and I would love to someday go out there and, and, and see for myself. But well, uh, you you yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and they also have the you know, they also have the luxury of having a, uh, you know, to counter my last argument, you know, they developed their key cities um, at a time when they were walkable and designed with natural materials. And so they have that working to their advantage uh, as well. So, you know, there are some benefits to the way that things work there. And there's some benefits to the way things that work here, just like there's some some downsides. So it's it's always a it's always a struggle because humans tend to act in their own best uh, selfish best interests. And, and that's that's fine. Maybe they should do. Um, but, yeah, it's it's just the uh, the stakes and the, the drivers are different on the two continents and country by country. So, Blake, going going from that and then looking to your career, I mean, with 22 years of experience in the AEC, architecture, engineering and construction industry, um, the work that you're currently doing as the global director of sustainability at NOR, in all of your previous experiences, you have really given given your life to this to this sustainable architecture industry. And it's, it's incredible work. And your work is it will be will be used for a long time in all the work that you've done. So the next question I'll ask you is, could you dive into your career, you know, this 22 years um, in this industry and talk about little by little, you know, how you built from the beginning all the way to where you are now? Mm, Well, that's a good question. Um, If I'm to go back to the very beginning from when I start that 22 year cycle, so that would be during my third year of architecture school. Uh, began working for a construction company as their drafter and was leveraging my prior experience, strangely enough, from high school, just, you know, learning, using the skills that I learned in a drafting class to, you know, create documents and and was working on um, commercial industrial warehouse facilities. So not the most inspiring buildings, but, you know, it was experience nonetheless. And uh, that really began my my career. and. You know, for a series of years, I was bouncing around doing internships, getting a feel for uh, what kinds of building typologies I wanted to work on, what types of firms I wanted to work on. I think that's an important part of our learning that can't be learned any other way. So some people really thrive in a a small environment where everyone has to wear a lot of hats. Uh, I know some people that couldn't work for anyone else and they're sole proprietors and they do everything themselves. I don't I don't see how they do it. I've always I found that I like to work at big companies with lots of resources and lots of opportunities because you can just get lost in them. And I'm a bit more of an entrepreneur than most architects. So for me, a big company provides that kind of opportunity. It took me many years at working at small and medium sized companies to realize that that's just not me. And because I was able to get this specialty in sustainability, suddenly I became very valuable for a big company and um, not so much for a smaller or medium sized firm uh, where the work is a bit more hit or miss. So with that comes the opportunity to move uh, from sector to sector, uh, location to location, and to never, you know, I always have more work than I'll ever be able to do in a lifetime through that, which is which is really an amazing thing, as opposed to just being tied to uh, and being at the whims of uh, the external e- economic factors, because it's unfortunately always the interns and young staff that that are uh, uh, 
come and go with the the swings of the economy. Um, but you know, I was I was sort of following the traditional path until I hit a breaking point in 2006 and realized that that's not for me. I'm too entrepreneurial to sit around for the next 10 to 15 to 20 years doing what I'm told and not thinking critically. Um, I decided to get the the uh, degree in sustainable design. And when I came back into working in a, a corporate architecture firm in 2010, after working in about four or five small offices, um, I then was able to think critically, be creative. And instead of just working my way up from the drafter to the project manager, to the job captain, to the project architect, which takes 25 years, I found myself as a 28-year-old director. And I was young enough and naive enough and energetic enough to really run with that responsibility. And um, from then on, it's just been all about that. And that was a that was a pretty big leap uh, of faith. And, um, you know, I look back on it now and think, man, I was crazy to, <laughs> to try that. But I just didn't know any better, which which played to my uh, played to my advantage long term. But I get to be one of the last generalists. Most architects focus on one building typology. So when I worked at uh, hospitality firms, we only did hotels. When I worked at retail firms, we only did retail buildings and and, uh, big box retail and uh, restaurants and things like that. I'm in the sustainability world now. I'm one of the few architects on my team that gets to work on transportation projects, public buildings projects, housing um, you name it, we get to apply sustainability to it because it's a philosophy around how we should design, build, and operate buildings. And with that comes the ability to execute it on everything that we do, which keeps it very interesting for me. I, I also found that I got very bored with just working on one problem over and over and over. Some people love that. So I'm not bashing it. You just have to you have to find your way in your profession. And there's there's more than just one way. And most people don't recognize that until it's too late. Yeah, I, I love that answer, by the way. That's um, I was actually talking. I was in an interview the other day and they asked me, you know, what is what was your least favorite MBA class? And for me, it was accounting. I hate accounting because it's so it's dull. It's like numbers. It's the same process. And I'm like, I like entrepreneurship way better because there's always more than one answer to every problem. But with accounting, it's like, no, there's always one answer. And I'm like, well, there's more ways to get to the one answer. And um you know, for creative people, um, you can get, I don't know if I should say distracted or discouraged in school because you're always getting pressed to one answer. And, you know, creative people, you're not always going to be thinking the same way as your classmates, as the, as your peers, the people around you. So, I mean, exactly. I mean, I, I can understand why you wouldn't want to work on the same type of construction all the time. To me, that would be a law. Like I would, I would hate it. I mean, you'd get yeah, so bored, yeah. you wouldn't be able to use Use your talents, right? And your creativity. Well, architecture school is a creative endeavor. Um, to depend, you know, some states define architecture as an art, some as a science. So that's why you have certain schools of architecture in art schools and some in technical schools. Um, but irregardless of that fact, architecture is a creative endeavor. And so my restlessness was uh, overly awarded in architecture school. I would say I look back now and I see my professors indulge me too much, but they saw that I was a person that was willing to go as far as it took uh, to get the projects realized. And um, the profession doesn't necessarily realize that uh, the same way, you know. 
um, unless you're doing really innovative, interesting things. And then suddenly that's the way to do it. Right. So it's it's you just have to find your way and you need you, you the worst thing you can do is put a creative person in an endeavor that always has one answer in a process that's driven by a, a sole process with no deviation. And the worst thing you can do, likewise, is take a person who loves process and single answers and put them into a creative field where there's open ended schedule and answer and budget and and no boundaries. Right. So it takes it takes both sides to make the world work. And it's best to partner with somebody that's the opposite of you for that reason, uh, just so that you can, you know, two brains are better than one, but it's not two brains if you're the same person. Right, right. I'm, I'm a big believer in psychology as well and looking at different personality types, looking at different personality tests when you're in groups and understanding how everyone interacts. So, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So looking now into architecture specifically, um, what I'm what I'm interested in is and, and this is selfishly coming from me. I'm very interested in, you know, how we came from this historic approach to architecture. I mean, you see these these grand buildings from the past that are still standing to where we are now in our modern architecture um, and, and how everything has evolved. And you almost look at for me, I, I look at these old buildings um, and I say, wow, I mean, where did the creativity go? Because now the buildings are almost if I was if I was to say modern buildings, I might say it's a lot of plug and play. You know, we're trying to build as efficiently as possible with um, with this with the same resources. And we're trying to have cost savings across the board. And we're just trying to build as quickly as we can and just build, build, build and build. But there's no creativity, in, in my opinion, to a lot of these big projects. So I would ask you, how has architecture evolved? Again, if I'm looking historically I mean, you have these grand buildings, right, that that you can just tell that people took a lot of time and effort and thought into to now where we see a, a shopping mall that that looks dull and um, and, you know, there's not much creativity to that. Oh, fair enough. Um, I knew you're going to ask the question like this. <laughs> this is a tough one to answer, right? Like, where does architecture come from and where does it go? Um, you know, architecture has been. Um, a struggle between opening up space through mass. So if you look at the Great Pyramids, for example, it's a gigantic block. And, you know, we're still finding little nicks and crannies in there, nooks and crannies in there that we didn't know existed. But if you look at the ratio of space to structure, it's almost 99, uh, sorry, one, one to 99, 1% being open space and 99% of it being just a solid thing. And slowly over time, we've been eroding space and building technology and materials to open up um, the, the vast expanse of the interior and how we articulate that historically has been through availability of local materials and labor and materials and labor drive architecture just as much as the, 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 the team of geniuses that are that are creating it. Um, there's a bit of a misnomer in architecture that uh, architecture is um, led by a master builder and, uh, you know, maybe. But uh, buildings are too complicated now. I heard recently at a conference that the era of the master builder was over. Now, when I was 20 years old, that would have upset me greatly because my ego was too big and I took myself too seriously. But it was funny to not really be thinking about that when I heard it because I automatically felt a, a, a bit of ease and calm come over me because it's like, oh, it takes the pressure off, you know. And the reality of the situation is buildings are driven by a lot of forces. But um, the biggest challenge that I see to architecture to answer your question is that what you're talking about as as like great architecture, right? Like a the Louvre or 
you know, a Gothic cathedral or, or some building with a lot of ornament and a lot of handcrafted details and things. Um, it's driven by a whole different sense of uh, economic factors. And the, the, the easiest way I can think of to explain it is that that came from an era when goods and services and labor were inexpensive. And when they are inexpensive, then suddenly you can have sort of amazing architecture as a result because goods and services and labor are inexpensive. Uh, we exist right now in a time where there's massive shortages of goods, services, and labor, and they're expensive when we can get access to them. And that more than anything drives the um, um, the architectural uh, ethos. It, it's it's the hidden partner on the team, the financier, the banker, the broker. Um, they have just as much say in a building as the architects, the engineers, the end users, the clients. And, um, you know, it's a real struggle. And we're moving into a time right now um, where that is the, the the hockey puck of urgency around that is just moving in the wrong direction that we want it to. Um, but, you know, if you look at places in the world where uh, and, and I'm not saying that the, the ethics are following this, but there are certain areas where goods and services and, and labor are inexpensive. You see a little bit more uh, heroics in the building. So if you think about some of the uh, if you think of a postcard of Dubai, for example, uh, you know, virtuoso buildings, very modern, very sleek, crazy forms, uh, you know, huge museums, uh, you know, they're building the palms, for example. It's a reflection of the economics and, and 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 also the power structure as well. So there you have a family, essentially, that controls everything. And so everything is very much driven by top down. It's very, uh, you know, they have money and means and resources. Um, one of the other challenges that we face in architecture is a design by committee. So architects don't have as much freedom as perhaps we would like. And maybe that's for the better. I'm not really sure because there were there were eras when architects had too much freedom and it didn't result in any well that's a that's an oversimplification it it didn't have the long term results i think that society wanted um it was probably cool at the time but um you know when we go to get a building permit in a city like boston or new york there's a lot of regulatory oversight there's a lot of community engagement there's a lot of things that that um and and these are not bad things these are good things but it's just complicated to get a building through and it's trying to speak to so many voices that it becomes um, a bit less about the heroics and more about trying to, you know, appease all the various different end users. And there's a lot of them and, you know, buildings impact people, whether you in, you're inside of them or not. So that's part of the reason why it's a challenge to get buildings built today. It's just there's a lot more oversight, regulation and engagement in conjunction with these issues with shortages and expensive uh, labor, goods and services. I think I think for people, especially in the U.S., we've become so accustomed to everything is so fast. We need we need our food right now. We need if we go shopping, we need it right now. If if we're going anywhere, we need it as fast as possible. So I think the buildings. I brought up the shopping center. I, I think the buildings have kind of taken what you know these U.S. citizens and and people like myself we're trying to be as fast as possible, and they're like, hey, let's just build something. Um, you know, have some walls in it. We, we don't have to, to, you know, make something like a Gothic cathedral like they did in the past. We just need to build something that, that can be quick and efficient. People can come in and out. If I'm talking about like a restaurant or like, like for example, I think we talked the other day of um, I'm in I'm in Dunwoody, Georgia, and they recently built this Dunwoody shopping center. 
great places. Um, I, I eat at I eat at a restaurant there all the time, but it's so basic, and it and it just pisses me off every time I'm there because I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a great space, but you have like the same four colors on every building, and it's so basic, and there's no creativity here. I'm like, you you had this massive opportunity, and you could have made this look so beautiful, but now it just looks like, it just looks like a like a Walmart version of architecture i don't know if that's what i would say and i'm talking about yeah the architecture in a situation like that becomes the backdrop for you know capitalism to unfold right so it needs to be capable uh, of attracting tenants to it and attracting people to to spend money in those tenants spaces and when you do that it's you know i used to work on what those are called um sort of outdoor lifestyle centers, right? It's a shopping mall and, and it was very fashionable at the turn of the century to take the top off the, 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 the mall portion of it and sort of it was like an indoor outdoor space, right? And, and, and you've had these, it's almost like a, like a city surrounded by a sea of parking, but it has like kind of a main street feel to it, right? But it's big box retail and everybody knows it. Um, when you build those types of facilities, it's all driven by the square footages and the, and, and, and the, um, there are certain in every architecture, hotels, government buildings, laboratories, housing. It's all driven by certain rules of thumb um, that, that change sometimes with structural systems or, or, or whatnot. But but there's certain rules by which you can attract the most tenants. And if you're a developer taking out a big loan to put down the money and build it and hopefully they'll come. Um, you don't want to violate those types of things. So, but unfortunately, like you said, the architecture is a backdrop to the capitalism, which is the branding, which is the interiors. The money gets spent on the interior finishes of the 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 space, so that you have that branding, so that you know, because companies like for you to get your cup of coffee and it feels like the same place on the east coast and the west coast and the middle, the north and the south, right? Uh, there's a brand behind that. People have thought deeply about what that means and how it relates and and all that kind of stuff. So that kind of architecture is meant to celebrate that. Now, there are certain moments in the architecture that you get to celebrate um, a little bit of sense about where the place is, right? Because it's in Dunwoody, Georgia, and it's not in Dubuque, right? So what does that mean? Well, it's how you articulate the columns of the buildings. It's how you articulate the shade structures. It's how you create an arrival. On entry, it's the signage, it's the landscape. The landscape is tied to place. It's a living thing. Uh, well, <laughs> on lots of life support systems and irrigation and things like that. But if you design it the right way, it can be a living thing, and it, it can it can speak to space. While the architect, the big picture moves are a a hearkening to or a backdrop for for capitalism to manifest. And you can have your cake and eat it too. You know, it's just uh, you're a rare person who notices that. Most people don't expect much from their their buildings other than their buildings to keep them warm uh, or cool in the summer, warm in the winter, um, and to, you know, enable them to do the types of functions that they have. But we don't expect much else out of our out of our buildings. And people don't don't know that they can expect more out of architecture, but they should. They should. So, I mean, if, if I'm asking you, what is the role of architecture in a community? Is that all perception based? I mean, is, is that all depending on who you ask? Or should there always be a singular role of architecture in a society? Well, I mean, architecture serves people. And if we go back to the Greek roots of the word, architecton, um, you know, architecture is defined as the art and science of building. And, um, you know, it's 
intended to be something that uplifts the human spirit. It's not just a building. It's not just a functional, like solving a problem and, you know, um, a widget. It, it's supposed to be more than that. And that's where the magic happens. And that's the, the sort of the magic that we bring. It's the hardest thing that we do, actually, I think, is to make a building project more than just a building project because it's easy to get bogged down in those those metrics, right, of the, the rules of thumb and the costs and the all all those everybody's concerns and it's like well you know am i just drawing up everyone's concerns or do i have some conviction myself as the designer and you're as far as i'm concerned you're a horrible designer if you have no conviction so the the means of architecture is to reflect society and to elevate society while enabling humans to do what they do architecture should be about resilience it should be about the health and well-being it should it should inspire people it should do a lot of things that maybe it's not doing per your comments. Um, but essentially, you know, if we get back to the roots of the the word and the words in Greek that were spliced together to make this concept, the way I think about it is architecture is creating order from chaos as though a human could do that. Um, but it's an endeavor nonetheless that's it's almost like a, it's like chasing the wind. It's something you can never quite accomplish, but you you, you do it nonetheless because you're driven to it. And, and I think that that's the role that it, it should play is beyond enabling function to happen. It should uplift the human experience mm. because we, we spend 90 percent of our time inside buildings, indoors, inside the built environment. We can't escape it almost. We go camping, right? But at some point you come back. Um, you know, the reality of the situation is, is that it affects us whether we want it to or not. So it should do so positively as opposed to just being a backdrop for something else. So so bouncing off of that, when I look at sustainable architecture, and this is a concept that I didn't know about until I in, in one of the previous episodes, I had somebody on that talked a little bit about building and unbuilding with the with the environment in mind. And she opened my eyes to a lot of things because, you know, I'm inside a building right now. And again, like I said, you become you become so accustomed to, you know, just coming inside, doing your work and leaving. You don't really think about how much energy you're taking, you know, how much um, how many how many emissions that you're emitting from the building. So when I ask you and I say the word green architecture or green building, what exactly does that mean? Great question. Um, it's a building with. Positive intention. I think you said it perfectly. Most people just exist in them. They take them for granted. They don't think about what they do. And because of that, buildings are the largest greenhouse gas emitting sector, bigger than the more obvious polluters, which are industrial sectors and transportation. So buildings are responsible globally for 40% of greenhouse gas emissions because of that fact. And it wasn't until the early 2000s that we even knew that. And it was at that time that I began to I, I sort of uh, I had my conversion moment, so to speak, because um, I realized like, wow, what a missed opportunity that is. And then I realized my responsibility as an architecture, or, sorry, as an architect was to have positive outcomes from the work that I do, not negative outcomes. So I think that green architecture is about green outcomes. It's a building that doesn't pollute the environment. It doesn't contribute to um, stormwater runoff. It promotes health and well-being as opposed to sick buildings. 
It uh, promotes indoor air quality. It, it is rooted in its place. So it can run off the wind. It can run off the sun that hits it. Um, it's daylit to save energy and also promote well-being on the inside of it. Uh, it's made of materials that are sourced locally with environmental attributes as opposed to just take, extract, and, 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 um, and repeat. Uh, so there, it has the outcomes that we want. And so putting intention back into architecture beyond just getting into magazines, beyond just winning awards, beyond just getting the project done. It's something, you know, because it's going to live on for years and years afterwards. So if you put bad outcomes into a building, it will have bad outcomes for 50 years. I think 40 years. I think 40 years is the average lifespan of a building. Uh, that's a long time. That's a lot of impact. So if you put the right intentions and you get the right outcomes from a building, then, you know, it has that 40 years or more of positive outcomes. So we're talking about green buildings and I mean, everything that you just said, I mean, you, you just summarize what a green building is. So when, when your clients or people come to you and say, hey, we want to we want to build or maybe we want to we want to renovate a building with with the environment in mind, we want to have um you know a b and c in, included we want you know we really want to have a sustainability approach um in the future is there certain metrics upon how green a building can be and if and if there is what are some of those we do a lot of bespoke sustainability strategies for clients because their challenges are unique to them and um but but let me take it a step back so you asked about a metric for green buildings. So this didn't exist for a really long time. And in the 90s, I would say, when it first started coming about this idea of, you know, buildings could be green. And it really emerged from the energy crisis in the 70s. But then the 80s, everything resurged and a lot of that information got lost. There was actually there was actually a lot of great innovation in North America in the 1970s, which was ahead of Europe at that time, strangely enough, <laughs> in terms of sustainability, it all got erased. Um, because of a time of plenty. But in the 90s, this question started reemerging. And, um, you know, the U.S. Green Building Council, in I think it was 1992, founded, uh, it, was, it was founded. And four years later, in 1996, they had the LEED rating system, which stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. And that was the second metric for uh, how to define green buildings. LEED was derivative from a UK-based system called BREAM, B-R-E-E-A-M. And BREAM is sort of the godfather of all rating systems in the English-speaking world. And LEED was derived from it. BEAM in Hong Kong was derived from it. Uh, Green Star and other programs were derived from uh, BREAM. But it was written for the UK market. Uh, one thing that the U.S. is fantastic about is creating something to go global where the best marketers in the world. So if you want engineering, go to Germany. If you want marketers, you come to the United States. So we created a global standard um, called LEED that looks holistically at a building project, whether it's an interior fit out, a neighborhood, an existing building or a new construction project. Um, and it looks holistically at these measurements uh, of how did you use the site? How did you uh, tie into transportation networks or promote alternative transportation? How do you how efficient for energy and water is your building? What types of materials did you use? What did you utilize to promote 
positive indoor environmental quality in terms of daylight and ventilation and limiting smoking indoors and the, the specification of the materials. It became the scorecard and the lingua franca, so to speak, for how we talk about sustainability today. And it didn't exist until 1996. And it didn't really begin to take off until about 2004. It took about 10 years for the market to pull, to, to absorb it. Um, and it was around that time that I became a lead, lead AP in 2006. Um, but it was the, the, the first I had ever heard of a holistic measure of how green a building is. And it ranks buildings on the number of strategies that it pursues. And so there's various different rankings. The minimum level of threshold of performance is certified. Then it goes all the way up to silver, gold, and platinum levels, heavy metals. It is what it is. Um, and now there's a whole ecosystem of rating systems out there that lead exists within. Um, there's the well rating system that focuses on health outcomes and evidence-based approaches. There's the living building challenge, which is the quote unquote nirvana of green buildings. It's the most stringent, uh, most environmentally focused. It, it, it fundamentally transforms how the industry defines and approaches a green building. And it's truly green in the sense that it's not just about doing a little bit better than code and being a little bit less bad. Uh, the living building challenge is essentially a, an environmentally benign building that generates more power than it uses on its site. It cleans uh, its water that falls upon it and it uses the water for potable uses that, that comes in the source of rain or well water on site. Um, so there's a whole language now and they're almost like romance languages. They're kind of related to each other, but each one's a little bit unique. Um, there's a whole spectrum of opportunity out there, depending on how hard you want to push and how far you want to go and how much resources you have and other types of drivers um, to push sustainability to the to the absolute limit, to where buildings are uh, regenerative or giving back to their environment as opposed to just taking away from them, which is which is where we need to be headed. So you mentioned the living building challenge. Um, I'm familiar with one one single building um, actually in Atlanta, the Candida building on Georgia Tech's campus. Mm -hmm. uh, this is I, I've still not visited it yet, but I definitely want to in the future. This building, it it gives more energy than it takes, which is mm -hmm. crazy to think about. And this is this whole concept of living buildings. Um, I actually have a friend in the Knoxville area, Knoxville, Maryville area, and he said that there's a development happening there in the future where they're trying to have a whole community of living buildings. I, I can't remember what the name of it is, but um, that that sounds incredible and, and obviously something that would be great. Um, also, you mentioned the lead um, different rating system. Um, last episode I had on um, Sophie um, with the Atlanta Hogs and State Farm Arena. They're they're lead gold certified, um, which I don't know anything about the different rating system, but um, they're they're gold certified, which is pretty cool as well. So, you know, going from there, Blake, and, and looking at architecture um, in, in general, what, what we see a lot now is buildings being demolished um, and the new buildings being built right up, you know, over and over and over again. I mean, you, you live in Boston, I'm sure you see this. I mean, I see this in Atlanta. I see this in the Dalton area. I see this in Castle. I mean, you just see this over and over again. And it seems like to me, um, we treat architecture as disposable um, when in reality, we should be looking at buildings before we demolish them and saying, okay, how can we renovate these buildings instead of demolishing them? 
to feature a new look or feature a, a new um, design or, or a new a new strategy for X company or, or X residential area or, or whatever. So I don't know. Just to me, it, it just seems like we could be doing better than we are. Um, so I, I guess I would ask you, why do you think that we do treat architecture as disposable in today's day and age? You know, that's starting to change a little bit, but there was there was once upon a time when the philosophy of everything old is bad and everything new is good. I don't know if you know this story, but um, I'm guessing you're familiar with Fox Theater in downtown Atlanta. Yes, it's the most beautiful building in the city. It was designed in the 19 teens by a French architect from Morocco, and it was built during that interesting time when theater and film were kind of the same. And so we designed film showing theaters the same way that we would design uh, fine arts theater or performing arts theater. And it is an icon in Atlanta and it nearly faced the wrecking ball. In the 50s, 60s and 70s, uh, when the city was drained of a lot of its vitality and resources and population, the building fell into disrepair it was closed for a long time, and the building behind it, which um, is on Spring Street, it's a it's sort of a brutalist, modernist building. It's just a big white box, right? Um, they wanted the address. They didn't want to be on Spring Street. They wanted to be on Peachtree Street. They wanted to buy that address, demolish the building, just to put their building one block north. And it was that where the citizens of Atlanta drew a line and said, enough is enough. You know, the challenge with a city like Atlanta is that um, there's nothing to hold the value. That it has nothing to respond to uh, in terms of its growth. Um, it's what makes New York, New York. I mean, it's a term coined by Rem Koolhaas called Manhattanism. And the reason why Manhattanism exists is because of the geographical barriers of New York. Once the island of Manhattan filled up, there was nowhere to go but up. And so that's why skyscrapers um, took off there and also in Chicago, uh, different reason in Chicago, but they really proliferated in Manhattan because of the physical barriers. Um, in Boston, it's the same thing. We have water on three sides of us, um, and we are primarily now on reclaimed land that sort of pulls together saltwater flats and archipelagos and things like that together to create the modern morphology of the city. But it gives us something to respond to. You can't just grow infinitely. Uh, and so there's nothing to hold the real estate value in a situation like that. And when people can just drive five minutes and longer and, you know, uh, uh, save a, you know, save a fortune without having to build near the center, it's really difficult to make things like public transportation or just real estate values hold um, in the way that they do in cities like ours. Um, and strangely enough, that makes the old building stock more valuable than than less, because I think there's a, an acknowledgement now that we can't ever go back to the things that that were before and they have intrinsic value. And a lot of it got destroyed, which makes what's left even more um, even more precious. But there there is a, a changing of the guard right now. So for a long time, we used to talk about just energy reduction and energy conservation in the last I would say since 2019. I don't know what happened during that. Time, but it, that was the date when everything started changing. Like I felt like my role was a lot less about advocacy and more about sort of transforming this pent up need into action, which was fantastic. But the the shift went from energy to carbon. And when we started talking about carbon, 
it opens up a, a bigger boundary condition for the conversation about the role of buildings. Now, carbon is emitted in buildings through energy use. And so it's not just about energy used by the building, but it's also the grid that it's tied into. So if you build a building in Montreal and you build the same building in uh, West Virginia, they're going to have very different outcomes in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, not only because of the climate, but also because of the grid. So they have a lot of hydropower in Quebec. In West Virginia, it's going to be a lot more carbon intensive because it's all coming from fossil fuels. And so with that being the driver in the conversation, it enables us to put carbon budgets on buildings. So new construction projects have to emit a certain amount of carbon or else they'll be taxed or they won't get a building permit or whatnot. So there's the operational carbon that we're talking about and also the embodied carbon. And what we're learning is that as the operational carbon comes down in buildings because we're increasing building codes, we're cleaning the grid, that embodied carbon in the materials suddenly becomes of higher value and something that we need to combat equally as well. And so that means that the materials in existing buildings have an intrinsic value that they didn't have before. And, you know, there's a really great opportunity right now because we don't need as much office space as we have. Mm. And what we're doing instead of tearing those buildings down and starting over is we're seeing a lot of building conversions where you're turning these urban core office buildings into high-rise multifamily because you've actually got a lot of room. It's well served by public transportation, so you can reduce your transportation emissions, and it brings density into downtown, which is really great for businesses. And so cities are reimagining themselves, uh, not by designing new buildings, but by reimagining the existing buildings that they have too many of. I mean, one could argue that we have more buildings than we need. We just don't use them very wisely because we have a lot of single-use buildings, and we need to move more towards uh, you know, density, mixed use, and and just being imaginative and creative with what exists right now. So one one topic I'm very interested in, and this all spurs from um, I was in Puerto Rico, I think it was in December of last year, and we were in the capital San Juan. I mean, one of my friends, and you know, you walk everywhere in San Juan. It's a very walkable city. Um, you know, it's obviously great weather. You you want to be outside and. When I would walk near near the the shoreline um, in San Juan, I just kept noticing over and over again these condominiums, the, these large high rise buildings that were just in in destruction. Right, there was nobody staying in the in them. They were they were completely destructed, and I just kept thinking, wow, the opportunity that that lies in these buildings. You know, these these buildings were destructed. I think it was in 2015 or 2016. Hurricane Maria came through and really hit Puerto Rico hard and sitting there, you know, six, seven years later and nothing's been done to those buildings. So I just remember sitting there and thinking, why has nothing been done with these buildings? So that's why I'm I'm interested in this. And this is why I want to ask you the question, you know, what do you do after a natural disaster comes through an area like Puerto Rico and you have these, you know, these high rise buildings, let's say they're 20 stories high, 20 stories high, um, how do you how do you go about that? I mean, do you go in and, and reimagine the in, interior of these buildings? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, you have building codes that you have to abide by, you know, there's safety risk. But I just felt like it was just a complete lack of space that's not being used. And I don't know. I mean, for me, not having much experience in this field at all, um, I, I just thought, wow, what a great opportunity for a developer to come in, you know, take take the structure of this building and, and rebuild it from the inside out. But that might not be realistic. So I guess I'd ask you, 
you know, how would you how would you go about that? You know, after a natural disaster, let's say in Puerto Rico. Well, good question. Um, you know, having not been there myself. Um, I'll have to ask you a question. Were, were, were the areas around the buildings roped off? Uh, no, they were not. No, they were not. Interesting. Well, the reason why I ask that question is because it, it does seem like a missed opportunity, right? I mean, there's there's only, you know, so much waterfront land <laughs> and, it, and especially high rise buildings in a, in a scenario where you don't have a lot of high rises. Right. So you, you ask, well, why wouldn't they? just move back into those buildings. And it may be driven by invisible forces, right? I told you that there's a lot of invisible forces behind buildings. And one of the invisible forces is insurance. Um, what they may have discovered is that their building is no longer viable and they can't get it insured. And if they can't get it insured, they can't get it occupied, at least legally. And, um, you know, that's the challenge with a changing climate is that uh, we build buildings to code. And we think about the risks that are associated with those. But unfortunately, what we've learned with a series of natural disasters that have started to get bigger and more frequent um, at the turn of this century, and will continue to do so as we progress through time, is that we're reacting to flood maps, realizing that they're outdated um, after the uh, after we realize that, oh, this isn't the 100-year or the 500-year flood zone anymore. It's actually moved in 100 feet or 100 yards or, or whatever it is. So, you know, it gets to the point of how do we build resiliently, uh, which is tied directly to how do we build sustainably? Because you can't have sustainability without resilient. You can have the most green building in the world, but if it if it can't be occupied during a time or used for its function during a time of disruption, then it's it's useless, right? So you have to build both into each other. And it it begs the question of, and this is a tough one to swallow, particularly if you're a building owner, do we build back where we were before? Or do we retreat? And again, it's driven by economics and insurance and just the fact that, well, if we retreat from this great site, then we live to fight another day, but we lose that waterfront property and then someone else gets the advantage of it. And, you know, cities are having to really start to ask this question in particular coastal areas. You know, why are we building here? Uh, how do we link systems together to build resilience into the built environment? Is it a is it a is it a storm surge wall that's built a few miles out? Do we elevate the ground? Do we retreat from uh, grade one? Um, it's spurring all kinds of projects in and around uh, urban areas, particularly on the coast, just because um, it's 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 a it's a real phenomenon that's happening there. Uh, even though we're seeing you know more wildfires, more droughts, more extreme this, more extreme that, um, the it's hard to escape the chance of sea level rise whenever you know most of our global cities touch the the ocean or the oceans of the world. So. It's a it's a factor that you it's just it's just happening right before our very eyes. It's almost like watching the grass grow, but you, you can actually see it. And the storms are getting more intense and 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 cities are starting to realize their inherent vulnerabilities. And so we have to build resilience and resiliency into them. And that means a combination of gray and green infrastructure, which presents an opportunity to bring those areas back into sort of place based harmony with their environment. I don't think resilience should be about um, fear of the built environment. I think it's really about rooting yourself back into place. And it's almost a celebration of place because let's face it, a building on the coast, it may flood 
0.001% of its life, but the other 99.99% of its 99% of its time, um, it must function as a as a viable building and a part of the the urban tapestry. And so I think you have to do both. Well, Blake, this has been an incredible conversation. I have you have taught me a lot of things. Um, I guess it's the professor in you that's coming out <coughs> teaching. Um, but this has been a great conversation. And, you know, last thing that I do on the show, I ask three very vague questions to all the guests. And, you know, I, I like to do this so that all the listeners can understand, OK, there's there's really one answer that everyone comes back to, um, especially on this first question. That is, you know, why is sustainability important in the world we live today? Well, it's important because it's it's our I, I think. Our role, our job as human human beings, is, is to is to be stewards of this planet. And we inherited this place and time that we're in because of the heritage of that that we inherited from the people before us, our grandparents, their grandparents, on and on back as far as you can go. And the idea is that it's going to go as far back as it went, as far forward as it's going to go. So we owe it to ourselves to be sustainable so that we can pass that on to our children, our grandchildren, um, their grandchildren, as far as it can go forward. And uh, because somebody else was doing that for us. Now, we've a bit broken with harmony and humans have, you know, it, it's 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 interesting for me to look at archaeology because in archaeology, you, you look back and it's all the trash pits <laughs> that they find all the, the artifacts that tell us insights about our, as far back as we can go. So, you know, humans have not been the best stewards of the planet, but they they existed in balance with it because we were a small part of the biosphere. Um, it's becoming more important to be sustainable because we're in a, an era now called the Anthropocene. I think that's how you say it properly. I've heard it pronounced multiple ways. But um, we or, or better put, human activity is now uh it is now having an influence over the biosphere um, greater than that of the natural rhythms and cycles of the world. And we have the responsibility to manage and store the planet better than we do. We have the capability to do it. We have the metrics. We have satellites. We have all kinds of things at our disposal. We just have to have the heart and the mind and the desire to use them. Mm. And so I think it's very important for us now. Uh, to do this because it, we have a limited time uh, before we cross this threshold of the point of no return. And as I've heard it put by a friend of mine, we're on the verge of the world's largest science experiment with the climate. And I just don't know if I want to <laughs> know what happens if it all goes uh, the wrong way.